Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Janice Matias. My mother looks me in the eye. She says, you have to learn to be a big girl. My mother exposed her pum pum to me. Her pum pum did not look like my pum pum. That and more. But before that, we are still taking pitches for our July 30th show in Detroit, Michigan, and our July 31st show in Chicago. If you are anywhere near Detroit or Chicago, pitch us your story. If you know someone who is anywhere near Detroit or Chicago who you think might have a great story to share, have them pitch us. Stories can be funny, scary, beautiful, anything. As you know, the theme is, is this incident you're taking us into, were you emotionally invested? Does it feel revealing? Does it feel kind of like you're coming outside of your comfort zone to be sharing this in public? Or is it just really meaningful to you? We always zero in on particular incidents like the weekend that this happened or the morning that that happened. There's lots of wonderful tips on how to pitch us and how to start mulling over a story on the Risk website, risk-show.com slash submissions. There's also the storytelling resources page at risk-show.com slash storytelling resources with little tutorials, little videos, you know, four minutes each, just giving tips on particular storytelling techniques. And of course, we coach our storytellers. We help you prepare. So if you thought that the deadline was passed for getting in a pitch for Detroit or Chicago, Detroit on July 30th, Chicago on July 31st, the deadline has not passed. Pitch us your stories. Go to risk-show.com slash submissions. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is ESG behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Discovery. So many stories are about people making new discoveries or discovering stuff they thought they already knew. Our first story comes to us from one of our favorites, Mark Redmond. Mark has a phenomenal memoir. The title of it is Called. It's always just a little confusing to say that because people say, called what? Well, it's called Called. (laughs) And you can find out more at markredmondbooks.com. Here is Mark now with a story we call What's Credit? In 1985, I was living in New York City. I had a part-time job at Catholic Charities. They had just created a new office to deal with homelessness in New York City. And homelessness was a new phenomenon in America at that point. And one day I just happened to pick up the phone. It rang and the person calling was a priest. He was a Jesuit priest. His name was Father Bill McNichols. And that he was ministering to men with AIDS who were homeless. And AIDS was fairly new in 1985 as well. And AIDS at that point was a death sentence. There were no drugs to treat AIDS. If you had AIDS, it was a cruel, horrible death and men were being kicked out of their homes because people didn't understand AIDS. It was terrible discrimination and ending up on the street. And Father Bill was helping them. And he wanted to start a residence for homeless men with AIDS somewhere in New York City. In fact. He even had a building on Christopher Street. It was a convent at St. Veronica's. And St. Christopher Street was really the center of the LGBT community in New York City at that point. And I asked him, well, why that particular building? Why that convent? Expecting he would say, well, it's got the right zoning or the right number of rooms. Instead, he said to me, that St. Veronica was the one who comforted Jesus as he was carrying his cross on the way to his death and that he wanted to comfort these men who had AIDS on the way to their death. And when I heard that, I knew that I was talking to someone who really lived on a very special spiritual plane, different from most people. So I met him a few days later at the St. Veronica's convent, and he was a young guy, long hair. He later told me he was gay, and he also brought with him a nun, Sister Patrice, who worked at St. Vincent's Hospital, which is a couple of blocks away. And St. Vincent's Hospital in the 80s was the main hospital helping people with AIDS. They were really doing heroic work. So we went through the convent and really it was, it was perfect for what they wanted to do. So I left, I went back to my office and I wrote up this proposal and I sent it to this Monsignor who's like a super priest in the Catholic Church. He headed up Catholic Charities. 
And honestly, uh, I thought I was on to something really important here, and I was proud to have my name attached to it. You know, I was proud to write this proposal and be affiliated with this whole project. So I didn't hear back from this Monsignor. So a few weeks later, I went to go see him, and he said something like, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're checking into that. A few months later, I'm at home watching the local news on TV, and I hear the announcers say, after the commercial, Catholic Charities starting a residence for men with AIDS. So I'm thinking, this is great. This is happening. You know, our project is moving forward. Maybe I'll be in the New York Times soon, who knows? Then the commercial ends, and there is the Monsignor standing in front of the St. Veronica's convent. No Father Bill, no Sister Patrice. And he says, oh, yes, Catholic Charities will be opening this up, and Mother Teresa's nuns will be running this. And I went nuts. I called Father Bill. I called Father Patrice. They didn't hear know what was going on, and I said, they took our idea, they cut us out. And they were angry too, but I would say more disappointed. I was pissed. I mean, I was just ballistic. So I quit my job at Catholic Charities. I sent this letter to the Monsignor. I wrote, I can't believe you did this. You took our idea, blah, blah, blah. And of course, I didn't hear back from him. Two years later, I was on retreat with my father and my brothers, and we went to a retreat house, a Jesuit retreat house on Long Island. And when you go on retreat, there's always a retreat leader who gives talks. And this time it was an older Jesuit priest, a man probably in his late 70s, early 80s. He just had the air of kindness and wisdom. I remember he said he was a cancer survivor. So while I'm there that weekend, I see Father Bill McNichols. He's there too. So I went over to him, gave him a hug, caught up with him, told him my wife had a baby, everything's going well. So at some point in the retreat, you have a one-on-one -on -one session with the retreat leader. So that night, this older priest, you know, he knocks on the door and he comes in and you just, you know, he wants to know what's going on in your life. And I said, hey, I, I saw Father Bill McNichols here. And he says, oh, yeah, Bill McNichols, you know, great guy. And he asks, how do you know Bill? So I start telling him the story of the, the convent and St. Veronica's. And as I'm telling it, I'm getting all worked up. All the anger is coming. He can see that I'm pissed. So he says, did the residence open up? And I said, yes. He said, so homeless men with AIDS, they have a place to go. They're being taken care of. And I said, yeah, that's true. He said, so why, why are you so upset? And I said, well, it was our idea. They stole our idea. We didn't get the credit. And he looks at me and he smiles and he said, credit? What's credit? And I said, nothing. I said, nothing. And those two words just kind of hung in the air. What's credit? And that was 35 years ago. That priest has passed away. So has Sister Patrice. So has the Monsignor. The retreat house closed. St. Veronica's church closed. 
I lost touch with Father Bill McNichols for a couple of decades, but then through the miracle of Facebook, we reconnected. He's out in Denver now. But that house for men with AIDS who are homeless is still there. It's at 149 Christopher Street in Manhattan. It's called The Gift of Love. And for the last 35 years, anytime I start to go down the road of, I was screwed, I did this great thing, I should have gotten the credit. Anytime I go down that road, I stop. And in my mind's eye, I can see the face of that kindly priest, and I hear the words, what's credit? This is Joe Walsh behind me now, and we just heard from Mark Redmond, and the editing on that one was done by Taj Easton. Now, there's a new bonus story going up on patreon.com slash risk. This week, it's from Eve St. Marie. And then I had, like, fights with him in my head because, and I could, he would never answer because he's dead, but he would always judge. I will always feel him judging me. That and so much more over at patreon.com slash risk. Over 150 bonus stories, over 60 or so check-ins. I did one recently where I started to look back at some of your guys' testimonials on our 600th episode. And besides all the bonus content, you get to know that you are really and truly helping us out, and we really and truly need it and appreciate it to keep Risk running. And then, of course, if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. 
you collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Our final two stories on this week's episode are coming up in a little bit. We're going to hear from Aliyah Liebenau, a story that she shared when Risk was in Portland, Oregon about a month ago. But before that, a story from Janice Matias that Janice shared at a Risk Live show in New York City over at Caveat. We have another one of those happening on June 23rd. You can find Janice Matias at JaniceMatias.biz. She dedicated this story to her mother, Lucille Gonzalez Matias. Here's Janice now with a story we call A Rose in Spanish Harlem. Hi, everybody. My story that I'm going to tell you today takes place in 1959 in New York City. I grew up in the Barrios. That's East. That was Spanish Harlem. During that time, New York City enforced strict segregation laws, making it impossible for people like me to associate or live with white people. My mother, who is African, Caribbean, Latina, had a gift of making money. She was able to rent a five-room apartment 
what we call in those days the best in the community, which was infected with rats, was decaying, <laughs> but it was high class in the body, okay? So my mother was able to rent this five-room apartment for my father, my brothers, and myself. It was during this time that I noticed that our standard of living was changing. I mean, we had the first color TV. My father was driving around with the latest Cadillac car. I had the first Bobby doll. Now, I knew that this was all because of my mother, Lucille Gonzalez Matias, and her relationship with our neighbor, Miss Gwendolyn, across the hall in apartment 12. Now, every weekend, my mother would spend her time over Miss Gwendolyn's house. I was responsible for taking care of the house and my siblings, but I'm nosy. So I remember at seven years old, I used to peek out of my front door and I would see a group of women standing over Miss Gwendolyn's house. Some of them were nervous, some was crying. And one by one, they would go into Miss Gwendolyn, into her apartment, and I would hear cries and screams. I thought my mother, Miss Gwendolyn, was beating these women because they were bad. Now, during those days, I was forced to go to Catholic school for my communion, which was run by white nuns from Europe. And I remember as the head nun would stand in front of us and would take a ruler and rhythmically tap her palm on her hand as we recite, I shall not fornicate. And I knew then, I knew then at a young age that this body was evil. And because it was evil, it could make me evil because I'm a girl. One day when I was about 10 years old, I was coming home from school and our front door is usually unlocked, but this time it was locked. And I remember kicking the door screaming, mommy! And my mother flings open the door and she grabs me by the shoulder and she almost flings me into the apartment and she has this, well, let's put it this way. My favorite show that time was the monster from the Black Lagoon. I don't know if that's that far away, huh? Yeah, but I loved it. And my mother looked like the white woman that saw the monster, okay? So later on, I heard my mother tell my father, the pigs have arrested Miss Gwendolyn because she killed a woman with a hanger, a wire hanger. Well, the pigs didn't come, or the police, but the women stopped coming. Time went by, and one night I remember I was laying in my bed, and my mother actually drags me in the middle of the night. The house is dark. She's holding a flashlight. And she guides me to the kitchen. She sits on the floor. She's doing something between her legs. I'm thinking, well, maybe we're going to have quality hour because she's always working. So I'm thinking, oh, we're going to play my favorite game, Jacks. So I kneel down. I look, and my mother looks me in the eye. She says, you have to learn to be a big girl. When I look, my mother exposed her pum-pum to me. Her pum-pum did not look like my pum-pum. Her pum-pum had a tunnel. I remember she said to me, she handed me a soft rubber but she said, look for the hole. I thought that was the game. So I find the hole and I insert my mother moans and then she slaps my hand 
tells me to go to bed. I'm upset because now I don't know why I lost the game because I didn't know what the game was about anyway. She never talks about it. But soon after that, every time she would put a pot on the stove and make this kind of like a soup, a strange woman would appear in our house. And she would look nervous and sometimes crying. My mother would take the woman into her bedroom, carrying the pot and a bag. The woman would come out smiling, sometimes laughing, sometimes hugging my mother. I tasted what was in the pot. And my mother is a very good cook. I don't know what that was. But I said to myself, it must be a big girl thing. 1965, the Civil Rights Act, outlawing segregation, making it possible for my mother to buy a low-income home in the heart of a white neighborhood in Springfield Gardens, Queens. We were known in the block as the family with the money. One day, my mother calls me into the kitchen. She's sitting there regal looking like a true Latina. I want to teach you how to make arroz con ganules because I don't want you killing my grandchildren. Now, this was very rare for me to have that bonding time with my mother. So as she was orchestrating how to prepare the ingredients, I felt a sense of bonding. And there was three questions I always wanted to ask my mother. Mommy, do white women coochie look like our coochie? My mother looked at me like I had grown two heads. The only thing I knew about sex was my mother tell me, don't let a boy touch your skirt. I was 13. Mommy, um, is do white, child, what shit are you asking me? My mother says. Child, pussy is pussy. <laughs> she used the big girl's word, you know? So I'm feeling good now. So, okay, I'm going to ask her my second question. Mommy, aren't you afraid that you might go to jail, what you're doing? So my mother looks at me like she was surprised, but she wasn't. And again, in her Latina African Cuban. Well, let me tell you something, child. I work for the mafia. They ain't gonna let nothing happen to your mama. Now, for some reason, I knew that from the barrio, there were some bad motherfuckers, but that made me feel good. So I felt that I gotta ask her my burning question. Mommy, don't you think that what you're doing, you might go to hell. Now, if you ever seen a culprit snake in film or picture, how they just stand up and they just have those dark eyes before they strike, that's how my mother look. <laughs> Let me tell you something, child. You don't know what it is to be a woman in these days. I hope in your generation, it's different. But women today don't have no right, especially if you're colored. 
You need a man for everything, to open a bank account, to buy a house. A man can beat you to death. Ain't nothing going to happen to him. You can't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. A woman, she get pregnant. The man don't want to marry her. She can't stay in her home. She's going to be labeled a whore. She can't walk. She's going to have to leave. And if she has the baby, they're going to put on his birth certificate, bastard, giving him a whole life of hardship and trouble. You know why we find women dead in their apartment? They're too afraid to go to the hospital. If a white doctor said you did something or your boyfriend or the bum say you did something, they can arrest you, charge you for murder, give you 25 years in some cases, give you the death sentence. So don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. I just give these women a choice in their time of trouble. Well, I just put the cover back on. <laughs> Covered it up. I sat down and we talked about how to make the perfect rice. <laughs> when I was 15, I wasn't feeling well and I was in the kitchen. And my mother walks in and she looks at me and she stops abruptly and, like, she's a scanner. <laughs> You're pregnant. You've been messing with boys. I was experimenting. Well, you better make up your mind before it's too late. That's when I learned the word abortion. And I had a choice. As I sat on my mother's bed, and she came in with the red pot in the bag, and as I felt the warm liquid enter my uterus, I took a deep breath. And I exhale, and I said, I'm a big girl now. The ability to ask good questions is one of the main skills that you can use to keep a conversation going. So let's get some practice. Mommy, do white women coochie look like our coochie? White women coochie? White, white women Did not look like my poop. White women, poop, poop, poop. Was infected with rats. Was decaying, but I loved it. Poop, Was changing. White women, poop. But let's put it this way: the monster from the White Lagoon. library doing some homework and I see Josh come walking by. Oh my god, what a babe. He is such a dreamboat. He is fat, hairy, Jewish, and my Jewish mother would have been so proud of me. 
he comes up to me and he's just like, Aaliyah, can we talk really quick? Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Anything you want, Josh. We had been seeing each other, like hanging out as friends just for a little bit. And I was just really starting to like him. Oh my God, he's so funny and he's so cute. And I was in my early 20s and I've never had a boyfriend. And I was really hoping that Josh would be the first boyfriend. So he's like, Aaliyah, let's talk. And I was like, yeah, of course, anything you want. And he's like, I just wanted to say that I really like spending time with you. I think that you're a really cool girl. We have such fun together. But I just have to focus on school right now. I'm about to graduate college. And I'm just worried that I just can't give you the energy that you need just for right now. Hmm. Darn. I got the friend speech. I was really hoping that Josh wasn't going to give me the friend speech. So I responded the way that I've always responded when someone gives me the friend speech. I just go, okay, yeah, no, I, I totally understand. Later that night, I started to think, my selective thinking is coming in. All I heard was, let's just put a pin on this right now. And We'll be friends right now, but give it some time and then maybe we could try it again. So I devised a scheme. My friends have always told me I'm so much more fun when I drink. (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely a square and I live a sober life. um, So I wanted to have fun with Josh and I wanted to show him what I was all about. So I gave him a couple weeks to think about it, and I invited him over to my apartment. I don't clean too much in my apartment because I'm lazy, and (laughs) so I was like, I'm going to clean my apartment. I'm going to get hors d'oeuvres for Josh. I put by hors d'oeuvres, I mean chips and candy. I was like, oh my God, he's gonna fall in love with me. I get the best pot and the best vanilla vodka that you could find. And I invited him over for some bad TV. Josh comes over. Oh my gosh, he's so hot. (laughs) And we just start shooting the shit, honestly. Like we just start having fun. We start smoking the ganj and we put on the first season of Rock of Love um, because I support Brett Michaels' choices in women. We just started laughing. We're having a good time. I bring out the alcohol and I just start pounding shots left and right. I don't even remember how many shots I took. I was just having so much fun. A little bit later in the night, I was like, Josh, let's dance. Let's dance. And he said, yes, let's do that. So I put on the best of the Bee Gees, Saturday Night Fever, hi. Um, And I just start showing off my moves in front of him. I started to get my swerve on. I was peacocking all in front of him. 
I was ruffling his feathers, honestly. And I just started getting my groove on. It was so much fun. I open my eyes. And I look around. I have no idea where I am. I look to my left, and I see a heart monitor. I see that it's attached to me. I look to my right, and I see a nurse sitting beside me. I look at her, and I go, where am I? What happened? And she's like, oh my god, you're finally awake. <sighs> what? And I said, what, what happened? I don't, I don't understand what happened. And she's like, well, you came in last night in an ambulance with alcohol poisoning. What? Really? The first thought that I was thinking was, oh my God, I don't know how much alcohol I took. Like, how do I not know? And then I started to really think about it, and I was like, oh my God, what did I do in front of Josh? <laughs> what did I say? What did I do? Is he mad at me? Oh my God, I can't believe I did this. So I took a taxi home, and I'm in front of my door, and I opened the door, and the most violent puke smell was just entering my nostrils. I look around my once clean apartment, and it is disheveled. There are papers everywhere. There's garbage all over the place. The chips and the alcohol are still on the table. The couch has been moved. There's puke all over the place. What the fuck happened? And I knew the only person that knew what happened would be Josh. And I don't want to call him. I don't want to do that. He's going to tell me he hates me and that he never wants to talk to me again. But I had to muster up the courage. So I called Josh up. And I said, hey, Josh, it's Aaliyah. And he was like, oh my god, Aaliyah, are you okay? I'm so worried about you. Oh, he cared. Uh, that's really sweet. I'm fine, Josh. I, I just got back from the hospital. I'm just really confused at what happened. Could you enlighten me? And Josh proceeded to tell me what happened. So while I was getting my swerve on to the beach, I fell to the ground and I hit my head. Now, we don't know if the alcohol was just coming back to me or if I just like really hit my head hard, but I couldn't get back up. And he tried to wake me up and I just stopped responding. And then I started to puke on myself. And then he got really scared and then he moved me to the couch, and he's tried to wake me up again, and I started to puke on myself more. And then I completely blacked out, and that's when he called the ambulance. Whew. Wow. It was so embarrassing. 
I can't believe that I did that in front of Josh. I can't believe that I embarrassed myself in front of him. Josh and I tried to hang out again. It's really hard to hang out with someone when you've like puked on yourself multiple times and ended yourself in the hospital. But I knew that I had to start to work on myself and start to understand who do I want to date. I had to start to love myself a little bit more. So I found myself at a party a couple years ago, or two years later, excuse me, and I see a boy. He's fat, bald, hairy, not Jewish, but he was so nice and so friendly, and we had so much in common. I started to really fall for him, and he started to fall for me. And he eventually became my first boyfriend. Thank you. For this week's episode, folks, this is, of course, the Bee Gees behind me now. I always did think this was just a kooky song. And before that, we heard from Aaliyah Liebenau, a story she shared at the Risk Live show in Portland, Oregon. That one was edited by Hope Brosh. And you can find Aaliyah Liebenau on Instagram at Pretty Cool Dudette, with cool being K-E-W-L. You can, of course, find all the information about all the storytellers and musicians involved in the show if you just go to the listen pages at risk-show.com. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. 
Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Folks, did you know that we teach storytelling too? Our school is at the Story Studio. We do one-on-one training. We do workshops that you can take online with other students. You can get some of our video classes and take them in your own time. You can hire us to work with your staff or your team. Our custom-tailored workshops that we do for businesses are always hugely popular. That is all at thestorystudio.org. And I do one-on-one training as well. You can look me up at kevinallison.com. Don't forget to follow us on our socials. We're at Risk Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm at the Kevin Allison on Twitter and Instagram. And anything else you need to know about us is at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. This is, or, uh, that is, uh, uh, uh.